You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today, to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know, and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is Yahweh your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly, as Yahweh has promised you. Do not say in your heart, after Yahweh your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that Yahweh has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that Yahweh is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, Yahweh your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that Yahweh your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked Yahweh your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against Yahweh. Even at Horeb, you provoked Yahweh to wrath. And Yahweh was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that Yahweh made with you. I remained on the mountain forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And Yahweh gave me the two tablets of stone, written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words that Yahweh had spoken with you on the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, on the day of the assembly. And at the end of forty days and forty nights, Yahweh gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then Yahweh said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly, out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. Furthermore, Yahweh said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone, that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against Yahweh your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that Yahweh had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. Then I lay prostrate before Yahweh as before, forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water, 
because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of Yahweh to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that Yahweh bore against you, so that he was ready to destroy you. But Yahweh listened to me that time also, and Yahweh was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at that same time. Then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust, and I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. At Taborah also, and at Massa, and at Kibroth Hatava, you provoked Yahweh to wrath. And when Yahweh sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of Yahweh your God, and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against Yahweh from the day that I knew you. So I lay prostrate before Yahweh for these forty days and forty nights, because Yahweh said, He would destroy you. And I prayed to Yahweh, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because Yahweh was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 656 of this podcast. That was a reading of Deuteronomy chapter 9, the full chapter, where you have Moses again continuing on in speaking to Israel, giving them a recap, giving us also a recap of how they got to this point and what they're about to go and do. They need to remember where they have come from and whose they are. They are God's possession. They are God's heritage. They are God's people. But they also need to remember and to know and to be very clear about this, they are not God's people because they were so righteous. In fact, Moses takes special pains to explain to them that they have been very stubborn. They have been very stubborn and rebellious and disobedient every step of the way. The whole time he's known them, they have been a stiff-necked people, a stubborn people, a willful people. And so he tells them again about the whole business of going up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments on two tablets of stone, coming back down the mountain. God being so full of wrath, he's ready to destroy the people of Israel and Moses interceding. God being so full of wrath at their having made the golden calf that he's ready to destroy Aaron and Moses interceding. Both times, Moses puts himself in something of the light of a hero, 
stepping in between the wrath of God and the people of Israel, stepping between the wrath of God and his brother Aaron to say, Lord, please don't. This is your people. If you destroy this people, the Egyptians will talk and say it was because you weren't able to deliver them into this promised land as you had said you would. It's because you weren't able to bring them through that you destroyed them in the wilderness. And that right there, whatever you think of how ready God actually was or was only appearing to be to destroy the people of Israel, that right there is something God wants us to know about him, that he is very concerned with his name, his reputation, his glory. We sometimes can care too much. Sometimes we can care too little about our own reputation. We can get a rather too high view of ourselves, but God can't possibly have too high of a view of his own name. His name has to be great. His name has to be honored. His reputation has to be, has to be something very holy because he is holy. And you just think to yourself about the problem of Israel worshiping other gods in the first place or making a golden calf for themselves in the first place. What's the big problem there? Well, it's an attack on the goodness of God. It is a claim against the holiness of God. It's a rejection of the authority of God. That's how this works. And even just the making of a metal image themselves, they know that that calf surely doesn't have any power. They're the ones that made the golden calf, unless this golden calf happens to be a exact likeness of a God they were familiar with in Egypt. There were various gods in Egypt who had the attributes of animals, the cow being one of those animals that certain Egyptian gods and goddesses were patterned after, or were some combination of at various points in their representation, in their mythology. Hathor, for instance, was the ancient Egyptian deity of many realms, mother to Horus, god of the sky, and Ra, the sun god, and goddess of beauty, sensuality, music, dancing, maternity. She's often depicted wearing a headdress of cow horns and a sun disc between them. Maybe Hathor was the one that they were trying to make this golden calf to resemble or to represent a goddess of fertility, a goddess of destruction and love all at the same time back in Egypt. 430 years, that's a long time to pick up on the culture and the religious practices. And certainly if the Israelites were slaves, they did all kinds of trades type work for the Egyptians, including, you would presume, making idols for the temples, making statues for the temples, making various pieces of art for monuments, for palaces, for homes. They were familiar. They had been on the periphery, at least, if not participating in worship at times. If they were willing to tell Aaron, up, make us a golden calf, 
then it's reasonable to suppose that this is actually going back, right? It's backsliding into the worship of Hathor, for instance. And yet, all we're told is this is a golden calf. It's a golden image of a calf. We're not told this is Hathor. It's not really all that important. What's important is this is not Yahweh God. This is not Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who delivered them out of Egyptian slavery. This is not Yahweh, their God, who has brought them to this point. This is not Yahweh, their God, who is commanding them to be a people holy to him. That's all that we really, really need to know. But then it's interesting because Moses melts down the calf. It seems as though he's doing this personally. He is doing it himself, not entrusting it to somebody else. He's doing it, melting it down, grinding it to dust, and throwing it in the waters. And elsewhere, we read that he made the people to drink the waters. But here you've got him bringing it up again as relevant, as they're just about to go into the promised land. And also, what's interesting here, he's bringing it up right after having mentioned again the Anakim, the sons of Anak. Who can stand before the sons of Anak is the saying. So these are a people who are very well known in the region. They have strong cities, great and fortified up to heaven. These nations are greater and mightier than you, he says. These are a people great and tall. And so in some sense, he's actually drudging up what the 10 spies that the people of Israel listened to instead of Joshua and Caleb and their good report. The people of Israel listened to the 10 spies and their bad report, the 10 spies who had been picked from the tribes of Israel, each one of them, a notable man. He's drudging up what was said, what was told to Israel that caused them to want to elect new leaders, to stone Joshua and Caleb and to elect new leaders and to go back to Egypt after they got the report back from the spies who had scouted out Canaan 40 years prior to this. You have here, in some sense, I think, Moses going there, almost as if to test, are you guys actually ready to face the people of this land? Are you ready to trust Yahweh, your God? And oh, by the way, you're going in when God gives you this land, when God gives these nations into your hand. Don't forget, it wasn't because you were so righteous. And so even right now, if there would be a temptation to think that they are so righteous, so much more righteous than all of the nations of the world, so much greater, they have done this thing. No. Again, this has to do with God's name, God's reputation. His name and his reputation have to be regarded as holy because he is holy. Everything that belongs to him is holy and set apart for him. But these sons of Anak, similar to the golden calf business, we're not told that the golden calf is a representation of Hathor. That's a good guess, I think. That's a probable explanation. But in some sense, it doesn't matter because the main point here is this is not Yahweh their God they're worshiping when they worship the golden calf. 
The Sons of Anak, who are they? Tell us more. We want a whole book about just the Sons of Anak. And in some sense, it's not the point. It is the point that we would believe that there are giants in the land. And when we're given measures and metrics and numbers to go by, that we wouldn't be stuck in our unbelief and listening to godless men who don't even believe Moses was a real person and existed. By the way, before you put too much stock in what they're going to tell you as very serious scholars, realize the Wikipedia entry says there are a lot of scholars today who don't even know if Moses ever even lived, much less when he would have been born. It's all up in the air. We don't know. We can't possibly know. Are you going to trust them to tell you who the sons of Anak were or that there were giants or there weren't giants? Are you going to trust them to tell you whether the plagues that afflicted Egypt actually occurred? Are you going to trust them to tell you whether God really did appear in a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of smoke by day to lead his people, to gesture to them when it was time to break camp and move on? Are you going to trust the godless men in the white lab coats who get the funding from the very wealthy social Darwinists? I'm not, speaking personally. But it is worth noting that these are giants and there's a real physical danger if it's just you versus them. And you're Israel here. There's a real physical danger. And it's not for no reason that Israel is afraid. But that is to say, when they're afraid, when they're given over to their fear, it's because they're thinking this is all just them. This is all for them to do and to sort out. And they're not factoring in God's promise, his command, his presence, his power at all. So there's at root If they give in to their fear, when their forefathers gave in to their fear or selfishness, it always came back again and again to faith or the lack thereof, love for God or the lack thereof, fear of God or the lack thereof. And so it is today. In this episode, moving on from commentary on Deuteronomy 9 to some current events items, And some articles since this episode at time of publishing is a subscriber-only episode. It will be available for everyone come August 1st. But since this is an only-for-subscribers, technically, episode, we're going to talk through a few of the articles and essays that I think have more staying power more of a lasting quality with regards to the macro, with regards to the meta narrative and the framework into which we plug current events the rest of the time or into which we speak and act today. So stay tuned for those. I've got one over at the American Reformer that I want to get to in response to another one that we'll talk about published at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, A bit of call and response there or (laughs) uh, prosecuting attorney, defense attorney with regards to celebrations of the 4th of July by Christians and how secular should our celebrations of the 4th of July be, et cetera, et cetera. Before we get into that, though, we do have a few 
current events items, just a couple, not many, but they will pertain to what we get into in the American Reformer piece and the Wall Street Journal piece. First up, I want to play for you a video, I suppose it'll be audio for you, of a gal who I've seen several times. I don't know her name, but she crops up saying these kinds of things to groups of women, almost like she is the anti-feminist evangelist. She's preaching anti-feminism and playing the foil to the conventional wisdom today about what women's empowerment means and requires and entails. I'm going to play this audio here, and I promise it relates to Deuteronomy 9 and also the articles we'll get into at the end of this episode. But here it is. Cut one. Without further ado, take a listen. But I want to say, what percent of women are virgins on their wedding day? Can we answer the question? Probably about 25%. 25%? Okay. It's 5%. What percent of women have been on birth control at some point in their life? 90%. But what are the, the reasons average, why women are average, not on birth control? Wait, wait, I've because, been on birth control because, before, but it wasn't because okay, of sex. Okay, okay, fine. That, which is all good and well until we start looking at the body count statistics. Where the where after a woman has had five partners, her chance of a, ma- a happy marriage drops to 20%. <laughs> okay, so and the average woman has slept with more than five men. Okay, which remember, Sorry, historically, a hundred years ago, 85% of women were virgins on their wedding nights. Now, what else does a man men get out of marriage. They get loyalty, but not today because half of women leave. Then, then we start to go into weight where women are overweight. The average woman is 5'3", 170 pounds. These are just numbers. And yet we scream misogyny at me, but these are, these are just numbers. Okay. All right. Now hang with me for a minute here. Again, I don't know that gal. I don't know the rest of the women who are in the video, it doesn't matter. If the statistics bear any relationship to the situation, these are pretty jarring, pretty stunning observations. When you put them all together like that, and you ask the question, has feminism delivered for women in the 20th century and the 21st century? Are women happy? Are they better off? Due to feminism, due to giving into this idea of women's liberation, women's empowerment, if you ask the question of a feminist, the answer will be incontrovertibly yes. And all of the problems that have attended women's empowerment, women's liberation will be ascribed, as with every other push for leftism and secularism, all of the problems will be ascribed to we haven't finished the job yet, right? We haven't done it yet. We haven't done enough of the secularism thing. We haven't done enough of the women's empowerment thing. But if you ask, let's say, for instance, an anti-feminist, somebody who is arguing for a more traditional view of men and women, humanity, the family, society, you get a very different answer. And most people are not these days at all familiar with there being another side to these conversations. They hear the first to state their case, who seems correct, as Proverbs tells us. The first to state his case seems correct until the other comes to examine him. When nobody is allowed to be the other who comes to examine the first to state their case, then things can seem correct. And then in actual fact, when you 
Zoom out, look at the statistics, zoom in on individual tragic situation after individual tragic situation. That's when you start to realize, hey, wait a second, okay, why isn't anybody talking about this, right? Why? <laughs> Where do we start? What do we do? I bring up this video in the context of Deuteronomy 9 in part because throughout the Old Testament, you have again and again God comparing his relationship to his people to the relationship of a husband to his wayward wife. You have, even in the New Testament, the analogy used again and again of marriage to describe and to illustrate the relationship between Christ and his church. On the one hand, the ideal is that the bride of Christ, the church, is presented to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, pure, devoted, wholesome, submissive. On the other hand, you have this image of the wayward woman. In fact, the whole book of Hosea in the Old Testament is about this. The wayward woman who was a prostitute when her husband took her to be his wife, and she kept on being a prostitute. She kept on prostituting herself to other men. The book of Ezekiel actually gets very, very explicit, (laughs) very explicit. A lot of English translations clean it up because us proper church folk don't want to be soiled by the language that's actually in the original, but there are some very explicit sections in Ezekiel with regards to Israel and Judah playing the whore. In fact, whoring as a term to describe Israel and then subsequently after the division of the two kingdoms, Judah as well, you have that word whoring used repeatedly, 80 plus times, I think is what I counted last time I checked, and I'm sure it hasn't changed. I think it's 84, 84 times throughout the Old Testament. And the reason why this is relevant is because today, with all of this talk of the ordination of women, of normalizing homosexuality, normalizing transgenderism, increasingly there is more and more out in the open a push to normalize pedophilia, by the way. Let's just groom all of society, all of humanity, to say it's all about consent. It's all about consent for adults. And you say, okay, sure, fine, at a certain point. You wore me down. And then they say, okay, but you know, it also needs to be consent for children as well. And they say, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, the people who were kind of asleep at the wheel weren't really paying all that much attention. They're just saying whatever to get along, going along to get along. They're like, wait, 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 what do you mean? It's all about consent for children. And then these people, these new pagans say, well, what we mean is it's all about children being able to you know, experiment with one another. And some of the adults say, well, okay, I guess that's not so bad. And then the neo-pagans say, you know, and also too, you know, if they feel like they're in the wrong body. They need to be able to consent to getting a reassignment surgery and undergoing so-called affirming care. And you say, well, wait a second. I'm not comfortable with that. That seems rather drastic. You know, it seems like that's going to have all kinds of long-term health effects. And then you're shouted down as a transphobe, just like the feminists have for a century and counting said, 
You're anti-woman if you're opposed to feminism, which is just nonsense. They're also using that same tactic with regards to transgenderism. If you're opposed to children being groomed to change their pronouns, take puberty blockers, have their reproductive organs either removed or mutilated, well, then you're what? Anti-trans. You're a transphobe. And then the next thing they're going to do, and this is not just my thought on this, I was thinking it, and then increasingly I'm hearing others come to this realization as well. And I'm like, yes, okay, so it's not just me. The next thing, once they have convinced you that it's all about consent for children with regards to their gender identity, and even to the point of being able to undergo gender reassignment surgery at a young age, the next thing is for them to say, okay, now it needs to be also consent. If you can say that's acceptable and that's the child's decision and the parents can't get involved and actually children can be taken from their parents in U.S. states today, according to the laws that are being passed in some states like Washington today, the next thing will be, all right, well, if you can agree that it's about consent for kids and what they do with each other after having gotten out of a sex ed class, if you can agree that it's about consent when it comes to the child electing their own pronouns and wearing clothes that match the identity that we've talked them into embracing, if you can agree that it's about consent when it comes to taking hormone drugs and puberty blockers and undergoing gender mutilation surgery, well then you also have to agree that it's about consent if the child consents to sexual relations with an adult. And all the while, this is predatory pagans who are trying to wear down broader society to their real aims, which are to prey on children and for it to be entirely legal. In fact, for it to be protected by the laws, just like abortion has been for 50 years. Now come back to this question of the video about statistics regarding how few women, what a small percentage of women are virgins on their wedding day, if they get married at all. But how few, 5%, 5% of women are virgins on their wedding day? Then get to talking about birth control. And oh, by the way, what's not mentioned in this video, but I've talked about it, is when women take birth control, they're typically more attracted to less masculine men. So there's a thing. It also typically, if it's hormonal birth control, it typically increases their likelihood of not ever being able to get pregnant. Even when they get off of the birth control and they're trying to get pregnant, it's less likely they will ever be able to get pregnant. It's more likely that they will have unhappiness in their marriage. If they were on birth control because they were sleeping around, they're more likely to be unhappy and they're very likely to get a divorce and to take half of whatever belongs to the man they've convinced to marry them. And to rub salt in the wound, to convince all of their friends and family, all their mutual acquaintances, that it was the man's fault. The man had it coming. So look at those statistics. And now, and now, let's talk about the relationship of the church in America to Christ our Savior. And let me just ask you the question, how are we <laughs> practicing for our relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in terms of our fidelity to his word, to his commands, as far as our submission to his leading and direction, his will, his purposes, his getting the glory, 
How are we practicing as a church to relate to Christ? If the standard is get on birth control, have a high body count, more than five men before you get married, get married, be unhappy, maybe have kids or try, probably don't have more than one, but definitely less than two. (laughs) Realize that you're terribly unhappy, get a divorce. If that's what the women are practicing today, and then they come to faith in Christ, and then the churches are ordaining them or breaking up over the question of whether to ordain them, the denominations are splitting and splintering over the question of whether to ordain them, how much should we take for granted that the most popular voices in the church in our time today know what they're talking about and are leading us correctly? How much should we trust what is selling the most copies at the local Christian bookstore? How much should we trust what's being played on Christian radio stations to be the whole truth? The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth shall help them God. How much should we trust that we're actually getting the whole counsel of God with regards to a holistic life lived in service to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Something to ponder. Yet, before we get into the two articles I've been telling you about, which I want to have sufficient time to read you selections from and also unpack and talk through, think through with you, John Knox over at not to be com published a piece July 6th, United Methodists have lost one-fifth of their congregations as the denomination continues theological drift to the bottom of the sea. They really know how to write the headlines over there at not to be, don't they? An interesting stat, since we're talking about statistics here, the United Methodists have lost one in five congregations since 2019. One in five, that's 20%. Some 6,182 congregations have received approval to disaffiliate since 2019, according to an unofficial tally by United Methodist News Service, which has been tracking votes by annual conferences. That figure is 4,172 for this year alone, it reported. 4,172 this year alone. Bishop Thomas Bickerton, president of the UMC's Council of Bishops, said the departures were disappointing. Quote, I don't think any of us want to see any of our churches leave, he said. Quote, we're called to be the body of Christ. We're called to be unified. There's never been a time when the church has not been without conflict, but there's been a way we've worked through that, end quote. Now, can I just propose to you that the United Methodist hemorrhaging of churches, over 4,000 this year alone. And it's July, if you haven't noticed. It's July right now, (laughs) so the year's not over. The year is not over. Have we considered that all this talk about being unified is getting the cart before the horse? Have we considered that not being able to work through it anymore when there's a disagreement maybe has something to do with the body of Christ being very faithless, similar to Hosea's wife in the Old Testament. And what I mean by that is when Israel and Judah 
went worshiping the gods of the nations around, that was likened to whoring. What do we call it when a denomination in the United States of America today goes flirting with, goes whoring after the gods of the nations? What should we call that? If you have thousands of congregations in some of these more progressive, more liberal denominations saying, we're out, right? That's it. We're calling it. Could it maybe have something to do with trying to infuse so many golden calves into the doctrine and practice of the church, like Israel did? Could it have something to do with setting up places of worship in Israel, Asherim poles, altars to Baal, altars to Moloch? Could it have something to do with the embrace of liberal theology? The acceptance of liberal, progressive, secular pietism. Could it have something to do with the drift towards wokeness and androgyny and transgenderism and homosexuality? The abandonment of God's commands with regards to sexual ethics, with regards to the family, with regards to engagement in society. Could it have something to do with that? Possibly, maybe. I think so. I think so. I think this is actually of a piece with the video I just played for you of the anti-feminist giving statistics and facts to a room full of women who are with the times. They are women of the world. There is a spiritual equivalent in many churches today in the United States of America. There's a spiritual equivalent to having a high body count coming into marriage having been on birth control and gained a whole lot of weight, letting ourselves go, not being submissive, not being obedient. These things all go together. You don't get just the one and then you can have your private religion and it's not affected by any of this other stuff if you're neglecting all this other stuff. You know, there's a great observation in Eric Metaxas' book, letter to the American church, there's a really great observation about Chuck Colson and how Chuck Colson rarely gave a speech or made a public appearance without referencing a quote by Abraham Kuyper. And I want to read this for you because most of the churches have forgotten this. I'm convinced. Most of the churches in America have forgotten this. Reading from page six, In Letter to the American Church, Eric Metaxas writes the following. The late great Chuck Colson rarely gave a speech in which he did not quote a certain statement of the Dutch statesman and theologian Abraham Kuyper. Quote, there is not one square inch, Kuyper said in 1880, in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry, mine. Now you just think about that for a moment. Think about that with regards to what so many of us have been told regarding social controversy, political debates. So many of of us have been told, actually pretty much verbatim, what Bishop Thomas Bickerton, president of the UMC's Council of Bishops, is saying. He's disappointed, right? He's disappointed, but what's the best he can give in the way of a response? We're called to be the body of Christ. We're called to be unified. 
You know, though, <laughs> here's the thing. It's not enough to be unified. If Israel were unified in all of those instances where Israel went astray, if Israel were unified, you might think this bishop would expect God would be very pleased with that, right? It's almost like when people reduce the whole of the gospel accounts, the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, the whole of the New Testament, the whole of the Bible to thou shalt not judge. Do not judge lest you be judged. And it's almost like that. That's become old hat for a lot of folks. This is the new version of that. We're called to be the body of Christ. We're called to be unified. That mantra is supposed to be a cure-all. And it doesn't matter how faithless, how unfaithful, how disobedient those claiming to be Christians are in the minds of the ecumenicists, the doctrinal minimalists, the progressives, the liberals, in their minds, in their rhetoric, the solution is unity. Wait, 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 wait. Unity needs to come with the condition that we're unified in obedience to Christ, in fidelity to his word. That's the precondition. Otherwise, for all we know, the devil has come as an angel of light. And if we're unifying behind him, maybe he's the Pied Piper. Maybe we're not actually honoring Christ if we thought about that. You know, maybe we could go and read what he wrote, what he said, what he had others to write. Maybe we could go to the Word of God and find out if we actually want to serve Christ, if we actually want to love God, if we actually want to be unified as the body of Christ. But you can't just say, Lord, Lord, have we not done many mighty deeds, many mighty works in your name? God's not impressed with that. And he warned us, he told us in his word that he's not going to be impressed with that. But then we would have to read his word and study it and believe it in order to know that, wouldn't we? Without further ado, let's jump into Christians Air If They Give Up on America, an article written by D.G. Hart, published at the Wall Street Journal, sent to me by my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez. And I'll just go ahead and read the entirety of it. It's not terribly long. It's an opinion piece at the Wall Street Journal. I don't think it's subscriber only. I think this is available to the public, but we'll find out, I guess. We'll find out. Quote, American Christians sometimes do unusual things in pursuit of patriotism. During World War I, many Lutheran congregations raised American flags in their sanctuaries and hung patriotic bunting from their balconies. It was a sensible show of national pride since many Lutherans still worshipped in their religion's native language and the U.S. was at war with the German Kaiser. Brandishing patriotic symbols was a plausible way to answer charges of disloyalty. Or consider the scene on cable television from 30 years ago when a famous Baptist congregation in Atlanta worshipped on the Sunday closest to July 4th, the choir sang of all things, Battle Hymn of the Republic. What stood out immediately was the anachronism of singing a Civil War hymn to commemorate the War of Independence, along with the strangeness of watching Atlantans sing a tune that had inspired the destruction of their city. 
In certain sectors of the Christian world, such patriotic excess is in marked decline. For several years, a gifted set of Roman Catholic thinkers, sometimes known as integralists, Edmund Waldstein and Adrian Vermeule among them, have taken a dim view of the American founding and its subsequent political traditions. For them, the cultural pathologies deforming American life stem directly from the Lockean liberalism the founders embraced when creating a new government. On the Protestant side, self-described Christian nationalists such as Stephen Wolfe and Doug Wilson are also, by a similar logic, implicitly critical of July 4th festivities. This group echoes Catholic criticism of America's liberal secular polity. These Protestants propose a return to pre-1776 patterns of government, such as John Calvin's Geneva or John Winthrop's Boston. In Protestant versions of Christendom, the civil magistrate supported churches and conjoled citizens to practice faith. For Christian critics of the American experiment, patriotism is misguided, if not corrupt, because the nation no longer honors God through its ceremonies and institutions. These critics also abhor the tendency to define the U.S. with all its might and wealth as a redeemer nation. That kind of faith in America, in their view, ignores how far the nation has fallen from true religion. The obvious challenge for Christian critics of secular America is to figure out where non-Christians or the wrong kinds of Christians fit in their preferred God-fearing state. That was the question the American founders contemplated, and it's worth contemplating the genius of their answer. The settlement hammered out in the 1780s somehow made room for all religious groups, including eventually skeptics and atheists. The full measure of religious freedom took a while to include Catholics, Mormons, and Jews. But in time, religious disestablishment freed all religious groups from governmental restrictions. The downside for churches that had been established was the loss of the government's financial support. But the benefits more than compensated for the loss. Religious groups were free and remain so to practice their convictions without seeking the state's approval. In the founder's version of American greatness, if Christians wanted to complain about the nation's religious decline, they had only themselves to blame. The American founding assigned government a limited role and turned over many social functions, including religion, to institutions outside the state. The U.S. was conceived as a nation that relied on civic associations, private organizations, and virtuous citizens who learned morality at church, in the home, and in school. Christian believers had good reason to celebrate the fourth, not because the country is carrying out a divine mission, but rather because it makes room for people like them to practice their faith as they like. Instead of American greatness stemming from conformity to Christian norms, America is great because churches can thrive in it. American patriotism distinguishes the functions of government from the substance of faith, which is why it can unite believers of all kinds in celebrations of the founding. Christians this weekend may not wish to sing the national anthem during worship, and churches are probably best advised not to sponsor a float in the local Independence Day parade. It's possible to mix expressions of religious faith with patriotic fervor in ways that are unhelpful and unwise. And of course, if the government makes demands that collide with religious duty, believers will as the apostles sometimes did, obey God rather than emperor. But the desire to thank God for the USA by marching in a parade with the Boy Scouts or the Rotary Club is a noble one. Gratitude is a Christian virtue, 
and it's entirely appropriate to express it in backyard barbecues and fireworks. Uh, just so you know, that is the end of the article. Mr. Hart teaches history at Hillsdale College and is author of From Billy Graham to Sarah Palin, Evangelicals, and the Betrayal of American Conservatism. Now, before we get into the response to this piece in the Wall Street Journal, a response written by Joseph Rigney and Glenn A. Moots, before we get into that response, I have some thoughts. Uh, one, I want to remind you again, the first to state his case seems correct until the other comes and examines him. There is some dispute as to whether what is being said by Mr. Hart here is accurate, is correct, is a fair summation of the sentiments of some of the people mentioned, some of the movements mentioned here. And all of that you will get a fuller treatment of in the myth of liberal secular America in just a minute. But before we move on to that piece, this over at the Wall Street Journal bothers me on a number of levels. And I've typically had a very high opinion of Hillsdale College, but what's being insinuated here is that it would be more appropriate for an American Christian to march with the Boy Scouts or the Rotary Club in an Independence Day parade. That would be more appropriate than, let's say, for instance, marching with their church. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. I don't think that's correct. I also don't think that there's anything particularly wrong with singing a patriotic song that reminds the congregation of our history as a nation, as a people, honoring God in times past, in decades and centuries past. I don't think there's anything wrong per se, generally speaking, with singing a patriotic song, which affirms that, yes, our nation is also under God. Our nation is also one of the nations that Christ will take possession of, that is one of his nations that he will inherit. The nations are his inheritance, after all. I think, going back to the Abraham Kuyper quote that I read for you from Letter to the American Church by Eric Metaxas, there's not one square inch, there's not one square inch over which Christ does not say, mine. And that includes the American celebration of Independence Day. That includes the rest of the year, how the American people think about their country, relate to their country. That includes how the American government governs its people and relates to other peoples, other nations of the world. All of it is under the Lordship of Christ, which is not to say it's all obedient. It's not to say that it all pleases him or it's all righteous in the case of the United States, any more than it is to say that the rest of the nations being Christ's inheritance means that they are obeying and honoring Christ as king. They will. They will have to eventually bend the knee and admit Christ is Lord. But I think it's okay for Americans, for instance, to march in the Greeley-Evans 4th of July parade. 
You know, there was a group that we watched, we observed, and I was told to look forward to them. They're the best part of the parade. My friend and pastor, Paul Pavlik, told me they're the best part of the parade. These Messianic Jews who are always in every year's 4th of July parade, and they dance and they sing and a truck follows behind them with speakers blaring joyful music because they're free, they say, because they're thankful for their freedom. I think it's okay for Christians to celebrate in our own way what we can celebrate and also at the same time to call for repentance, what must be repented of. And I think those two things should go together. Our thankfulness for what we should be giving thanks for, our honoring of all to whom honor is due, our obedience and subjection and submission to governing authorities to the extent that we can, but also our calling for repentance everywhere we find sin and folly. If that all goes together, that's a much better testimony. And if the Rotary Club or the Boy Scouts actually also need to be called to repentance, then maybe you don't always march with the Boy Scouts and the Rotary Club. Maybe you don't march with some of these civics organizations that have been completely secularized and they are becoming day by day vehicles to cement and increase the godlessness that needs to be repented of, the wickedness that needs to be repented of. Maybe you don't always march with them because they need to be called to repentance as well. Maybe you celebrate with the saints in such a way as to actually honor Christ as Lord. Just a thought. But that said, I want to get into our next article here, which is a response, and I think a good response, a better response than I'm going to try to give to those things addressed in the myth of liberal secular America. Published July 4th of this year at American Reformer, written by Joseph Rigney and Glenn A. Moots. A reply to D.G. Hart is the heading. And again, as with the other, I will read this one in its entirety. And I'm not at all concerned about a paywall here where somebody would say, oh, but that's not fair. Some of these people aren't subscribers. You're stealing. No, no. This is open source. Not to worry. The other one, I think it's fine. Quote, how will you be celebrating American independence? In Moscow, Idaho, the children in Doug Wilson's church will be riding their bikes in their county's 4th of July parade. The kid with the most patriotic bling wins a $100 prize from Wilson's church. In fact, Christchurch members were instrumental in restarting the parade after a 20-year hiatus. Don't tell Hillsdale professor Daryl Hart this, however. Hart got an early start on his Independence Day festivities by publishing a June 30th Wall Street Journal editorial attacking Pastor Wilson. According to Hart, Wilson will not be celebrating Independence Day. Neither will Stephen Wolf, author of The Case for Christian Nationalism. Both Wilson and Wolf are military vets, by the way. Nor will a group of Catholic scholars called integralists. None of them like America enough, Hart argues, so they won't be celebrating. They practice the sin of ingratitude for what he calls America's liberal secular polity. Controversies over Christian nationalism or integralism aren't new to readers of American Reformer. There's certainly a lot of uncharitable and stupid 
back and forth among believers on Twitter about it too, but at a time when Christians are increasingly cast as un-American and dangerous, what motivates Hart to throw his fellow confessional Presbyterians under the bus in front of 3 million plus Wall Street Journal subscribers? Was he filling in for David French? Was Russell Moore too busy with a book tour? What would oblige Hart from the supposedly faith-friendly halls of Hillsdale to launch what seems like an attack on another school filled with believers. Hart must name names, as they said in the 1950s, for un-American activities. He mumbles an indictment of his gifted Roman Catholic opponents, saying only that they are critical of Lockean liberalism, and quickly pivots to his Protestant foes. They commit the great treason of proposing, quote, a return to pre-1776 patterns of government, such as John Calvin's Geneva or John Winthrop's Boston, end quote. So far as American political thought goes, one could interrogate Hart forever on this point. Is he claiming that there is no continuity between colonial America and the founding? That would certainly come as a surprise to a host of American intellectuals since, well, the founding. Is he claiming no influence for patterns of government articulated and advanced by magisterial Protestants, that would also come as a surprise, especially to John Adams, who cited Protestant works in the development of Anglo-American constitutionalism. Perhaps the essential question is why Professor Hart hasn't, quote, done the reading, end quote. Setting Wilson or Wolf aside, why has Hart ignored the great renaissance among scholars, many Protestant or Catholic, whose university press monographs and trade titles have rehabilitated Christian articulations of constitutionalism, natural law, and resistance theory, tracing them not only from the Reformation but even before it to the American founding and beyond. Apparently, Hart even missed some fine work on Locke over the last 20 years. Why is he trapped in a narrow window of historiography and political thought a few decades of the 20th century at best, claiming America is merely secular and liberal? And why does he think that his view of the Constitution and First Amendment is uncontested. Consider the authority of Joseph Story, appointed to the Supreme Court by President James Madison, Madison of the Memorial and Remonstrance, off-cited to support a merely liberal and secular America. Story published extensive commentaries on the Constitution in 1833. On the question of the First Amendment, Story noted that, quote, every American colony from its foundation down to the revolution, with the exception of Rhode Island, did openly, by the whole course of its laws and institutions, support and sustain in some form the Christian religion, end quote. Lest you think this enables Hart's line of pre and post-1776, Story goes on to say, quote, and this has continued to be the case in some of the states down to the present period without the slightest suspicion that it was against the principles of public law or Republican liberty, end quote. Again, this was in 1833. Why doesn't Hart know that questions surrounding religion were left to the states until incorporation by SCOTUS in the 1940s? Even if he thinks incorporation of the First Amendment to the states is prudent, does he know that the First Amendment jurisprudence America got from the Vincent, Warren, and Berger courts relied on pre-1776 ideas and figures 
to justify its unprecedented demand for a secular public square. In short, Hart wants a First Amendment that didn't exist, concocted using cherry-picked facts from a pre-1776 America he doesn't like to justify a secularity no statesman would recognize, at least until the mid-20th century. Hart may seek the credibility of citing 1776, but what he has in mind is 1946. But what about, as Hart calls it, the freedom that lets faith thrive? Since the First Amendment didn't threaten state religious establishments, accepting religious tests for federal office, didn't the First Amendment at least prohibit the federal government from interfering in matters of religion? Again, we looked a story who contextualizes legal ideas leading up to the First Amendment. Quote, the right and the duty of interference of government in matters of religion have been maintained by many distinguished authors, those who were the warmest advocates of free governments as those who were attached to governments of a more arbitrary character, end quote. The reason for this concerned the common good. Story continues, quote, the right of a society or government to interfere in matters of religion will hardly be contested by any persons who believe that piety, religion, and morality are intimately connected with the well-being of the state and indispensable to the administration of civil justice, end quote. Such interference, Story argues, quote, is a point wholly distinct from that of the right of private judgment in matters of religion and of the freedom of public worship according to the dictates of one's conscience, end quote. Story's insistence that government interference in matters of religion is compatible with, quote, the right of private judgment in matters of religion, end quote, or, quote, the freedom of public worship, end quote, is not contradictory if compared to traditional Protestant teaching, what is often referred to as two kingdoms or 2K. For example, in 1614, Calvinist statesman and author Johannes Althusius saw no contradiction. In his work Politica, he wrote, quote, the Christian religion not only subordinates the bodies and goods of pious subjects to the magistrates, but even lays their souls and consciences under obligation to him and shapes them to obedience. Quote, a magistrate in whose realm the true worship of God does not thrive should take care that he not claim imperium over faith and religion of men, which exist only in the soul and conscience, end quote. That is because, Althusius argues, quote, God alone has imperium in this area. To him alone, the secrets and intimate recesses of the heart are known, and he administers his kingdom, which is not of this world, through his ministers of the word, end quote. Althusius alludes to a verse used by folks like Hart to claim that religious establishments were foolish violations of scripture, Matthew 22, Mark 12, Luke 20. Althusius's distinction between what is God's and what is Caesar's demonstrates that no one presumed governments could make anyone believe anything. Quote, faith is said to be a gift of God, not of Caesar, end quote. Althusius's distinctions are also evident in chapter 17 of the 1649 platform of church discipline wherein New England Puritan ministers, including John Cotton, for example, asserted the right of the magistrate in matters of godliness and yet distinguished between, quote, things merely inward and so not subject to his cognizance and views, end quote, over which he has no authority, and, quote, things acted by the outward man, end quote, 
over which he has authority. It's worth emphasizing that this traditional Protestant thinking, or traditional 2K, also called magisterial Protestantism, is not the new 2K of Professor David Van Drunen of Westminster Seminary Escondido, though Van Drunen's 2K resembles Hart's ideas in actual practice, nor is traditional 2K the faux 2K that Hart is peddling here. Hart's two kingdoms are a kingdom or realm of voluntary things and one of involuntary things. In Hart's complaint, his opponents advance a, quote, Protestant version of Christendom, end quote, wherein, quote, the civil magistrate supported churches and cajoled citizens to practice faith, end quote. At least we think heart means involuntary. Cajoled? There's a word you don't hear very often, so it's worth looking up in a dictionary and a thesaurus. Does heart really mean deceived, flattered, coaxed, wheedled? Magisterial Protestantism's civil magistrate flattered citizens to believe? Deceived them? Gently persuaded? What's his point here? Is it about magistrates' belief? Is all cajoling bad? If a parent cajoles a kid to clean their room, is that the same as social media cajoling them to dance in their underwear? What if neoliberal public policy cajoles us to have regular cancer screenings? Are our hearts cajoled to practice atheism by public blasphemy? Those are questions both practical and profound and reveal that the world is not all involuntary and voluntary. Neither is the former always bad and the latter always good. Why even bother refuting such simplistic ideas, however? The simple fact is that no one, not Augustine, not Calvin, not Cotton, not Story, thought that you could force or deceive or flatter or whatever anyone to believe anything, including the tenets of the Christian faith. You can say that a million times, but it will not budge the myth that religious establishments were so stupid as to think that you could force people to be Christians. They didn't. And it shouldn't be implied in the pages of the Wall Street Journal that they did. In Hart's metaphor, in which America made room for all religious groups, the Christian faith is a mere set of beliefs or ideas. A church is like a club that studies those ideas together, maybe LARPs them too. The U.S. stands or falls according to the health of such clubs, says Hart. Quote, the U.S. was conceived as a nation that relied on civic associations, private organizations, and virtuous citizens who learned morality at church, in the home, and in school. End quote. We both appreciate the importance of things being voluntary. Our wives want us to pick up our socks voluntarily, and we should. We want our students to do their assignments voluntarily, and they should. When someone tells you that Christian faith is something that should stand entirely on its own two feet, and wouldn't it be great if it did? However, in every polity, suggest the same should also be entirely true of mental health, equality before the law, literacy, parental responsibility, public decency, honoring contracts, or a host of other things that the same Christian faith encourages. No one treats those goods as things to be left entirely to clubs. They understand them to be part of the common wheel common good, or common wealth. People in political society cannot help but make judgments about what is good and seek ways to make sure those things are done in common. The hard part is deciding what is most essential and prudent. Even Hart's editorial is a demonstration of this. He can't help but lecture his Christian reader on how to conduct themselves on July 4, 
quote, churches are probably best advised not to sponsor a float in the local Independence Day parade. But the desire to thank God for the USA by marching in a parade with the Boy Scouts or the Rotary Club is a noble one. End quote. If Hart devotes his limited editorial space to micromanaging a hierarchy of parade activities and associations, then the common good of a polity must surely be more than false dichotomies about voluntary things versus cajoled things. We emphasize that it is not our intention in criticizing Hart's purge of deplorables to defend whatever Wilson or Wolf have said about America, or even to defend every goal of magisterial Protestantism. We profess to offer no defense of integralism. Wilson's political philosophy is actually a mixture of Westminster Presbyterianism and Christian Reconstruction, and Wolf's book sometimes strays from magisterial Protestantism. But it isn't hard, as we have just done, to dispel myths about America by drawing lines of traditional 2K from magisterial Protestantism in Althusius in the vein of what Hart called Calvin's Geneva to pre-1776 America to the U.S. Constitution. Such lines and many others suggest that Hart's casting of America as liberal and secular since the founding should be much more tentative, at least tentative enough to hold his tongue before attacking other believers as un-American in a major newspaper, arguing about what law does and doesn't do in America and what the roots of those laws are, is actually a very American thing to do. Okay, so first off, let me say, I think the piece at the American Reformer is much more thorough. I think it's much more robust. And there are a great many excellent questions posed and some excellent points made. And there's a lot more meat on that bone than what was offered up in the Wall Street Journal on June 30th. There's a lot more that I agree with and that resonates with me in the piece by Joe Rigney and Glenn A. Moots. There's a lot more that I agree with. In fact, I would love to see what the response is from somebody who would say they disagree. I fail to see anything to find fault with in what Rigney and Moots have as a response here. I think we need more of this. I think we need more of this in the public eye. In fact, I think it would be great if a piece like The Myth of Liberal Secular America were to be published with just as much fanfare, just as much airtime, just as much pride of place on the landing page for the Wall Street Journal as the kind of piece that D.G. Hart wrote and published. The trouble is there are a lot of folks who like the status quo just the way that it is, thank you very much, and even if it gets worse, because their chief interest is not upsetting the apple cart, not upsetting their financial interests or their social standing, not taking any risks with their respectability as they see it. They don't want the kind of thinking that Rigney and Moots are trying to popularize to actually become popular. Uh, That would be my guess. I would love to be proven wrong. I would love it if the Wall Street Journal would change my mind. And for that matter too, I would love it if there were more of a wholesale, widespread, 
embrace of this kind of back and forth because we are the better for being exposed to these kinds of debates. In fact, part of the reason I know that to be the case is because I've read Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville. De Tocqueville, a French aristocrat familiar with the French experiment with Republican government, which was far more in the mold that D.G. Hart is articulating, far more in the mold that we have been experiencing all my lifetime and probably much of my parents' lifetime as well. The French Republic was much more secular, much more arbitrary, it's fair to say. That's a word that came up in the piece by Rigney and Moots. Arbitrary is a good word for it versus objective. And as our Republic has, due to the intrigues and the inroads of the left, become more like that French Republic, we have found our government to also be more arbitrary, less friendly to the Christian faith being articulated or acted on, but also more friendly to the pagans and to mountebanks, more rewarding of those who do what is evil and more punishing towards those who do what is good. And that is a travesty. The only way to remedy it is for us to become more acquainted with the observations, very keen, very thorough, of Alexis de Tocqueville, his travels in 1831, just two years before story, as Rigney and Moots were quoting, in 1833. A U.S. Supreme Court justice providing commentary on the Constitution that takes a very opposite view to what is being laid out in the brief piece by Hart in the Wall Street Journal. For another thing, you might avail yourself of a more recent author, a more recent observer in Neil Postman and his work, Amusing Ourselves to Death, where he talks about the contrast between the colonial Americans and how well-read they were, how they were familiar with reading the back-and-forth debates just like this in their day, not just here in North America, not just in the colonies, but also in the old country. The early founding Americans were much more familiar with this kind of back-and-forth debate, and we have grown unaccustomed to the first who states his case being questioned or examined by the second who comes to examine him, who comes for that express purpose. We have forgotten how to do that. We have been conditioned out of doing it, as a matter of fact. We've been told unity, unity, when there is no unity, very similar to the wayward priests in Israel saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. We've been told unity, unity, just as we were told not too long ago, judge not, judge not, even though everybody's judging all the time, what they really want you to do is stop judging with right judgment. Actually, it's the opposite of what Christ commanded. Judge with right judgment. Don't judge by appearances. And yet, what do we do? We judge by appearances. Why else do the transgender folks dress up like the opposite gender and fashion their hair and their makeup and their jewelry like the opposite gender, like the opposite sex, and then demand you refer to them by their preferred pronouns? They're demanding you judge by appearances. That's what Jesus told us to not do. That's what he meant when he says, do not 
judge lest you be judged. He's saying, don't judge by appearances. But then he also says, judge with right judgment. Whose judgment is right judgment? God's judgment is right judgment. As Rigney and Moots are very deftly pointing out, despite so many of us having grown dull of hearing, what is going on in the inner man, we can't see. Only God knows that for sure. Arguably better even than the man whose own heart might deceive him. He might think only the best about himself, and he might be very badly wrong. He might be very badly mistaken. He might look at himself in a mirror and think, ah, I look like I'm doing pretty good. And God knows the inner man of the heart. But what we're called to is not to judge with right judgment in the way that God judges with right judgment, the inner man of the heart, because we can see those thoughts that are unspoken. We can see those feelings that are uncommunicated. We're called to judge trees by the fruits that they bear and to call a good tree good because we see good fruits and to call a bad tree bad because we see bad fruits. Jesus said that. But then again, going back to the Instagram video, if our interest in a relationship with Christ as the bride of Christ resembles what has become normative for young women, 5% only of whom, according to the statistics that were cited, are virgins on their wedding night, 50% of whom divorce their husbands. And it is almost always women, by the way. It's almost always women who divorce the men. All the while, they're letting themselves go. They're very unhappy. If we pattern our relationship with Christ and his word off of what is normative for marriages in our context right now, it's no wonder we wouldn't even know that Jesus said, you'll know a tree by its fruits. It's no wonder we wouldn't know that Jesus said, judge with the right judgment. It's no wonder that we would emphasize, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but we would neglect the teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you part. All nations. What does that mean? That means what Christ commanded applies in all cultural contexts. That means what Christ commanded supersedes whatever the cultural context is, whatever the laws of the nation are. And our founding fathers in the United States of America understood that. And no, they didn't get everything right. They didn't do everything perfectly. But that's not the point with them any more than it is with the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 9. Because what does Moses tell the people of Israel? Don't think when you have established yourselves in this good land, in these houses you have not built, eating the produce of lands you did not plant in. Don't think it's because you were so righteous. The founding fathers are too easily dismissed, written off, and canceled by the woke folk, by the heirs of the French Revolution today in this country, with a parade of the imperfections and sins of the Founding Fathers' generation. All the while, what is neglected is whether that was the precondition for what they did actually being approved of by God or orchestrated by God. And it's not to say that America is Israel. Critics who want an excuse to dismiss all talk 
of going back to a more conservative, more traditional American approach to civics and social life and community life. They will seize on that, and they do regularly. But no, as Eric Metaxas points out in Letter to the American Church, it is appropriate for us to view America as God's almost chosen people. That's appropriate. Or else what? We say that the deists were right. God's not interested in these things. He doesn't pay any attention to nations whatsoever. It's all alike to him. It's all the same to him. No, that's not true. That is not what the word of God tells us about the character of God, about the purposes and the plans and the promises of God. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The folks who want America to be merely a liberal, secular country may just be looking for the equivalent spiritually and politically of birth control, of a high body count, of whoring after the gods of the nations. And if that's the case, if that's even a remote possibility that this is of a piece with the United Methodists losing 20% of their congregations in the last four years or three and a half years, as the case may be, if that's even a remote possibility, by golly, we should want to dig in and get to the bottom of it and know what is correct and what is true. I, for one, want to. I, for one, am going to keep on digging in and I'm going to keep on bringing it to this podcast and I'm going to keep on talking about it and talking through it and thinking through it. And if you want to hear what I come up with, by all means, hit subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice, wherever you like to listen to podcasts, wherever you're listening to it now, I presume there is an option to subscribe. So you should you should go ahead and do that, right? Do hit subscribe. Also share this with somebody you know who is similarly interested in these kinds of things. And maybe just maybe if we roll up our sleeves and we do the hard work of studying to show ourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, maybe just maybe future generations, our own generation will be blessed for it. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you again to JP Chavez for the two articles we discussed in this episode. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.